is already live. So looks like we're set to go. Got a thumbs up from me. Thumbs up from you. Yes. Not significant. I know. We'll wait for the real thumb. I'm just worried about someone on the other phone. Is it on someone audio? Yep, it's, it's live. Everything's live. All right. Okay, so the thumb of authority has risen. I can take off the glasses that I can't see with and put them back here where I can spill things. Before we get going here today, I just want to say something. I'm not sure when I'm going to be back. I know I'm going to be back, but I have all kinds of tests that are going on in the next couple of months. So it will be missing. It will be coming and going. It's probably not, not stable. For those of you who want to know, unfortunately, I've been diagnosed with kidney issues, inefficiency. And if you're familiar with these things, my glomial filtration rate, estimated glomial filtration rate is 40, 41. And that is third stage, or that's third stage kidney failure is what that is. Now it's moderate and, uh, but it's definitely a difficulty. And my creatinine level has dropped slightly, but not enough to be really significant. It went to 1.76 from 2.2 which in two, a month and a half isn't terrible. If I keep that pace up, I'll get it down to probably 1.6 in the next three, four months. Yes. That needs to be 1.3. And my, e, my EF, I'm sorry, my EGFR needs to be uh, 60. Essentially, I have 40% efficiency in my kidneys right now. Okay. And that's, uh, that, that's, there's something I have acted, I have opportunities there are structures in place that can fix that and, and change it, but it's going to be a long road for me yet. And of course, in the first of the year, I go go back under the so I got endoscopy and colonoscopy. So when am I coming back? Dave will keep everybody abreast for that. That's the only thing I can say. Well, I'll find out a lot of things on the end of the month here, and, and then in, in January, and I'll be able to figure out finally what to be able to do. Okay, so enough enough about that. Are we, we're ready to go, so we're, I'm going to get started. Are you ready to go, young lady? Okay, November the 22nd, that's today, 2023, lecture discussion number 207, 207. On the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Job, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 14, Genesis 15. Now, we're going to be continuing where we left off on lecture 206. And so I hope you watch lecture 206. That, that, that is approximately the events encompassing the cup of Gethsemane. And hopefully everyone is aware that I, the adorable, highly trained religious professional, am slowly and carefully attaching the Ark of the Covenant to the cup that cannot pass of Gethsemane. I'm bringing them together because I believe they belong together, obviously. And, the, and remember, he cannot, the cup cannot pass away unless Jesus Christ drinks the contents. It's extremely important to know that. He has to drink it in order for the cup to pass away of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 42, for those of you who want to look that up. So in the analysis to this point, we've had to evaluate why Uzzah died when he touched the ark, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15, and why does it please the YHVH, the Godhead, to bruise the sun, Isaiah 53.10. Isaiah 53.10 is an extraordinary verse. They're all extraordinary. But for the, our particular 
uh, subject for today, Isaiah 53.10 is so is incredibly important to repeat the, this fact of Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleases the Lord God, the YHVH, the Yahweh, however you wish to put, pronounce it, to bruise him, which is a direct reference to Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 tells us there's going to be a bruising of the son, right? A bruising of the seed of the woman. Isaiah 53.10 says that it pleased God to do it. Okay, how do we fit all of that together, right? So we have we have a direct reference to Genesis 3.15, the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman inflicted by the seed of the serpent. And we have Isaiah 53.10, God is pleased by that. So that's a great mystery. We have to get that all figured out. Why is God pleased is the question, right? Why is he rejoicing over the bruising of God? God is rejoicing over the bruising of God. That's how it works. Obviously, something astonishing is being revealed in Isaiah 53.10. And it's my opinion that this connects to Matthew 26.36-46, which are the three prayers of Christ and the mystery of the cup of Gethsemane. So all of that, if you can get a hold of it, fits together and connects. You've got to ask a question. He has three prayers. Why does he have three prayers? Why didn't he have four prayers? Why not two prayers? Why couldn't he get it done in one prayer? But he has three distinct prayers in Gethsemane. Now, obviously, I have an Elohim here. I have the us. I have the triune Godhead. So that's the first place you would go. But there's more to it than that. There's always more to it than that. When you pull on the string, you do, what do you get? You get more string. Now, if you have endured lecture 206, then you might have noticed, I inferred, I implied, that the events of Gethsemane, the meaning of Gethsemane, the conversation allowed between the Father and the Son. I have God the Father, I have God the Son, God speaking aloud to God. Genesis 1.26, 3.22, that's the Elohim, that's the us, that's the three, right? So why God, whenever God speaks aloud to God, we should pay attention. And, and i got to repeat the obvious. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is also communicating in this. He's also at Gethsemane. Luke 22-43, I've said it in 206. I think I said it in 205. The Holy Spirit is the angel that has the capacity to strengthen the God-man. So the angel comes, and that's this angel that comes in Luke 22-43 has the ability to strengthen the God-man. And that is an incredible mystery. Unfortunately, the conversation as to the strengthening is not revealed. In other words, how does, how does God strengthen God, and how is it that God needs to be strengthened by God? The, st- the strengthening process is not explained. And whenever something is not explained, what do we know? That's, that's a big, wonderful place. There's treasures abounding in that. How does omnipotent God strengthen, strengthen excuse me, omnipotent God? Infinite power and infinite power. That's what I'm dealing with. Clearly, finite humanity is not going to conceive infinite power and infinite power. Anyway, to repeat, the Godhead is gathered and has assembled at Gethsemane. That's amazing. That makes Gethsemane a special event. We have to always ask, why did God come and assemble? What's the purpose? Why did he come and assemble at Gethsemane? Why that place? Remember that Christ is accustomed to going to the garden. Judas and Satan knew that God, that Christ wanted to go to the garden. 
And so they knew that's where he would be. How did they know that he would be there? What about this garden is so important? And as per usual, the angelic host is watching all of this. This is Job 1.6 again, right? They're listening. I intend to make the case that Gethsemane, the cup of Gethsemane, for example, or to, to be more specific, the cup of Gethsemane is a refutation of Satan's lie. And that would be the hedge predestination lie of Job 1.6. So I have these pieces now to deal with. I have the agony and the anguish and the drops of blood. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has great ag- agony, great anguish, deep sorrow, and drops of blood coming off of him because of the anguish that he is undergoing. So I have those pieces. And then I have the will of God and the will of God. I have got to reconcile that. Christ says, let this cup pass. But if that's your will, then I'll, then I'll succumb. I'll submit to your will. So it seems I have two wills here. I have the will of the Son and I have the will of the Father. Let this pass for me. Why would he say that? How is this working? So I, again, I call that the will of God and the will of God. In a seeming collision, they actually seem like they're colliding here. But actually they're not. They're in complete accord. And so it's important to understand how that is. So, why are all of these elements at Gethsemane being revealed to the angelic host for sure? Now, how many apostles uh, stayed awake through all of this? Answer was none, likely. So mankind did not hear this. It had to be recounted later to him. I want to know how did they get all this information in the Bible when they slept through it. So, and I've got all these other elements. The will of God, I've got the cup, the anguish, the agony, the, the angelic host, I'm confident is, oh no, is, is tuned in. Okay, so anyway, the Elohim is pleased that the second person who is the salvation is displaying his sorrow. And he is actually called, as you all know, the God-man of sorrow, Isaiah 53, 3. And the God-man of sorrow, Isaiah 53, 3, is declaring, he's displaying the suffering that he has, the grief, the misery that he feels. And he has mankind and angels involved here. And he's feeling this anguish and this misery whenever mankind and angels individually or collectively reject him, reject his love. And I'll say that again, reject his love. And what do they choose if they reject him? What do they choose instead? Because if you're going to reject him, you're going to choose something else. And that would be the second death. That would be the lake of fire. Matthew 25, 41. Do you think, here I have Christ in anguish. And the Father's will is that he take the cup and drink the cup. And he's in anguish. And he says, let this cup pass. Does it seem to you that he has remorse? That God is in a remorseful position. Does that seem to you as possible? Don't raise your hand here because that would always be a mistake. Does God have remorse? Can he have remorse? Does he have remorse? He says so in Genesis 6, 6. I regret making man, right? Because man has only become evil continually. Every thought. So it seems like he has remorse for making man. Is that going on here in, in, in Gethsemane as well? Does he have remorse over drinking the cup? Doesn't want to drink the cup. Is that possible? 
It's not. It's not possible because remember, God is complete. That means he has all variables accounted for. So he has investigated all of his energy, if you want to think of it that way, but at least all of his time into figuring out every single tiny piece that is involved in this. And he has made sure that the answer or the, or the way that they're going to approach it will be absolute perfection. So no, he does not have remorse. Seems like it. And we can, from our little human standpoint, we can even say that as long as we know we're idiots. But we can't, we can't put remorse here. Because that does not, that takes him away from his infinity. That doesn't take away his sorrow for knowing. No, it doesn't take away the sorrow. You're correct. But it does take away the remorse or the, in other words, he, he can't say, I should not have made man. No. Or I wish I hadn't made man. He's, what he is is sad that man has become what man has become. Right. And say, so has the angelic host. So it's a fine line, and you have to you have to reconcile all of these things to stay away from heresy, right? right. So I have the long suffering of God, Second Peter three nine. He is not willing. So again, will of God says drink the cup. But I also have God saying He is not willing that any should perish, Second Peter three nine. So I have Christ saying He's He's not willing that none, none should perish. I have God the Father saying the cup has to be drunk, can't be passed. My will has to be done here. So I have the will of God and the will of God. How do I fix that? Yes, sir. And that long suffering, my favorite passage about that one is in Romans 2 4, talking about his long suffering and the goodness that he pursues us with, um, constantly pursuing us with his goodness, but also long suffering in that passage that really that emphasizes to me that he's constantly pursuing us, he's constantly uh, patient with us. And he's constantly, his goodness is constantly around us to where we can recognize it. Well, absolutely correct. He, he's always good. But I, instead of looking, most people look at the long part. He's not, the long suffering of God. And what I'm wanting to say today is let's drop the long for today. Because he, he does have long suffering, but that means over time. That's a time reference, isn't it? How long is he going to suffer is the question. How long does God suffer? Now, the other issue is, of course, he's suffering. God suffers. As you pointed out, he grieves. He has sorrow. So we have a God, our God, the God of creation, is a suffering God. He even calls himself the man of sorrows, right? Right. Man of suffering. Christ is suffering. God suffers. Now, that becomes a very important piece of information about his character. It does. And it also completely destroys somebody else's idea of what... Uh, never mind. I'll get back to that later. Okay. Yeah. But he is not willing that any should perish, and he weeps and mourns over the wicked. Now we have to do something else. Now that I've told you that he's weeping and mourning over the wicked, what do we have to define here? We have to define the wicked. Who are the wicked? It's not as easy as you think. Therefore, the Godhead is pleased to disclose at Gethsemane this profound truth. And this profound truth that he's disclosing to the angelic realm and to the sleeping apostles is what I call the man of sorrows truth. The God-man has sorrows. He's suffering. Now, that's a truth that not very many people know. Why is he suffering? Over what and, and why? Obviously, as per usual, the angelic host is witnessing the revelations of Gethsemane. 
They're definitely doing it. You cannot ignore that obvious fact. God in the flesh is openly, they're watching God in the flesh. By now they know who Christ is, enough to where they know there's something, they know of his deity at least, minimum. But, uh, and, and as per you, as the, 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 the angelic host is witnessing, I gotta take some water here, hang on. Words are coming out badly. They have assembled, just as they did in Job 1.6, to see this special event. Every time God is doing something unbelievable, the angels are going to be there watching it. That's just how they operate. And so what they are seeing is this suffering, this God-man of sorrows. God in the flesh is openly weeping over the consequences of his drinking of the cup. He knows what's going to happen when he drinks that cup. So he is weeping over that cup. And he is bleeding over that cup. There's blood dropping, hitting the ground. And I propose that this is the first time this unveiling of the man of sorrow's truth has occurred. For the first time, the angels have recognized God is sorrowful. He weeps and he cries and he has all kinds of suffering. Now, when you think about God, do you think of him that way? Most people do not. And the only way that the cup can pass is for Christ to drink it. Matthew 26, 42. I keep repeating that because that's a very important piece of information. The only way the cup can pass is for Christ to drink it. So, by drinking the cup, the cup then can pass. And the passing of the cup then is the will of the Father. Matthew 26, 39, 26, 42. And the will of the Son is to choose the will of the Father. That's how it becomes into an accord. And there is no conflict. Now, I should interject that there is a cup of wrath position. I started to deal with that, I think, last lecture. So there are people that say this is not, this cup, this is a cup of wrath. And they say that Matthew 26, 39, 26, 42, uh, all of that is about wrath, and it got its origin from those who assume that the will of the Father was to do something interesting. They say the will of the Father was to condemn to everlasting utter darkness, Matthew 25, 41, that's the lake of fire. So when we're talking about the will of the Father, when Christ is saying, your will be done, they say, the, great, the cup of wrath position people will say, that is, that is that the Father is saying, kill these people. Thus the will of the Father. So in other words, he, he, he deems the wicked beyond redemption and the will of the Father, uh, they will think, is in conflict with the will of the Son who willed that none should perish, Second Peter 3.9. Let's keep saying that. Let me reduce it to the elementary. The, the, God of, or the cup of wrath position is that God the Father was demanding death while Christ the Son was advocating for mercy. And that, I hope, is not unfamiliar to you, I hope you recognize the similarity to Genesis 18, 16 through 32, where Abraham typologically, right, what's Abraham doing there? He's representing Jesus at Gethsemane. That's what he's doing. God, God is saying, kill them all. Specifically, Genesis 18, 26. Uh, we see where Abraham says, if 50 righteous are found within Sodom, then all will be spared. We'll spare all of them. 
no matter how wicked they are, they're incredibly wicked there. Sodom will not be destroyed, Genesis 18.32, if we can find 50 righteous. Obviously, we didn't find 50 righteous, did we? Genesis 18.16-32 most definitely is the Old Testament complement to Matthew 26.36-42, Luke 22.39-46. So when we start looking at Gethsemane, we need to go right back and find the Old Testament complement, which is, of course, Genesis 18. The triune Godhead is allowing all of those who are witnessing to see the truths of Gethsemane. The truths of Gethsemane is that the Father wills that the cup pass. That's what he wants. That's his will. And he wills that the Son drink the cup. And the Son wills that the Father's will will be done. That's how it works. There's no conflict. Most people think there is conflict here. Most commentaries think there's conflict, and there is not. You approach it thinking there's conflict, you're going to go into the ditch. Stay out of the ditch. What's a ditch? It's a grave where the end's kicked out. Right? The triune Godhead is pleased that the Son is in agony and in weeping. The triune Godhead, all three of them are in, are pleased that that has happened. They're rejoicing. So Christ is rejoicing. The Father is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit. The bruising, if you prefer it to be called that. And let me go back to the cup of wrath. Does anything indicate that this is a cup of wrath? Or judgment? Why is God pleased over the sorrow of Christ being displayed? And again, I think this is the first time that this man of sorrow's truth, as I call it, was was displayed to the angels. They did not know about this until they saw it at Gethsemane. If the cup were to associate with God's great white throne judgment and in effect the blotting out of the names of the Lamb's book of life. So I got names and, and those those names are blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. Remember Moses, blot me out, right? And the second death is for those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life. Revelation 20.15, Revelation 21.27. So if you're not in the Lamb's book of life, you're in the lake of fire. That's what will happen. Okay, so we got, got all of that, I hope, so far. Then we would expect that the cup that cannot pass would connect to Revelation 20.11-15. What's 20.11-15? That's the great white throne judgment. If it's a cup of wrath, that's what it will do. I don't believe it is a cup of wrath. I'm confident that it is not a cup of judgment. I think it's something every bit as significant in the sense that it's a powerful doctrinal statement, but I don't believe what we're talking about here is wrath. Now, there is a cup of wrath. And the, the wicked drink that cup, and the wicked are not drinking this cup. Christ is drinking this cup. So that eliminates the cup of wrath, in my position, or my uh, opinion. I just said that a couple weeks ago. Only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life can re- and enter into the new city of Jerusalem. You cannot go into the new city of Jerusalem, the eternal state, the, the city of heaven, if you wish to think of it that way. You cannot enter that unless your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. So at least to me, the cup speaks to, to the sadness. It speaks to the suffering, the man of sorrows, the salvation, the forgiveness of sin, resurrection, and life, John 11, 25. 
In other words, all of that is the prophet stage. What's the prophet stage? Christ has three stages. First stage, prophet stage. Second stage, high priest stage. Third stage, king of kings stage. So he is doing exactly what he should do in the salvation stage. He's trying to save people, right? Now, people will say again, they'll go back and say, well, while Christ is trying to save people, God wants to kill people. God the Father. No, the wills are the same. They're the same. You have to figure out how that's, that is, I believe. Gethsemane cements that free will exists. Let me say that again. Gethsemane cements that free will exists. You cannot deny that there is a will of the Father and a will of the Son. They have free will. Now, the free will is not in opposition. The free will is in agreement. But nonetheless, I have free will here. So free will exists in the Godhead for sure. And so it's a defining moment. It is where God declares that free will is a truth. And again, the angels are watching this. And the angels have been told with the hedge live, Job 1.6, that there is no free will. And God is saying in Gethsemane, there's my will and there's my will. So he declares that free will is a truth here. It's a, a fact. And the sorrow of Christ is the evidence of that fact. The reason that that free will is made obvious is because God, Christ is the suffering servant. He is the man of sorrows. Okay. Well, once again, Jesus Christ is the last Adam. i got to say this as much as I can because people will ask me, well, how is the fact that the sorrow of Christ is evidence? Well, the sorrow of Christ is evidence because of the fact that Christ is the last Adam as opposed to the first Adam. The last Adam, is that's Jesus Christ. He's reprising the actions of the first Adam while extending them to, to heights that we can't even imagine. So he says, I'm going to take a look at what Adam did. I'm going to... Uh, Take elements of it, but I'm going to expand it to a level that we can't even comprehend. It's uncomprehensible for a human being to figure out how he's done, what he's doing. So he takes it to heights we can't imagine or comprehend. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Romans 5, 12 through 21. All of that talks about the typology of Adam. So Christ is going to do what Adam is going to do. I've made that comment before. Adam ate the fruit, Christ drank the cup. Okay, we got the both in a garden at the same time, or are they in the same garden? In addition, Jesus is fulfilling the law, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. He did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to explain and reveal that all the law and the prophets do one thing. They're all focused into one direction, and that is to testify of him, John 5, 39. Everything in the Old Testament, if you don't find Christ on that page in the New Testament, go back and look again. Everything in the Old Testament testifies of Jesus Christ. Every single page, every single verse, every single word. That's how the Bible is structured. As we discussed last lecture, now here comes the Ark of the Covenant. It's a what? It testifies of Christ. It is a portrait, a prophecy of Jesus Christ that is clearly, directly referenced to the cup of Gethsemane. So when I want to learn about the cup of Gethsemane, what do I have to do first? I have to learn about the Ark of the Covenant. That will teach me, that will give me information about the cup of Gethsemane. Obviously, the Ark of, 
of the covenant or the ark of the testimony is designed by God for the purpose of disclosing the God-man. I've been over this quite a few times in my so-called career. That is the greatest of all mysteries, the God-man, the mystery of godliness, 1 Timothy 3.16. And by now, hopefully, you have seen me or heard me repeat this to the point of exhaustion. And my repeated mentioning of uh, 1 Timothy 3.16, I hope everybody has a basic understanding of that. The wood of the ark, the acacia wood, is the humanity of God. And the wood is, again, the humanity of Christ. And and that humanity of Christ there is completely covered. It's in total subordination to the godliness of Christ. And that, as you might know, is something that the contemporary church has no idea of and doesn't teach. So the ark starts out with acacia wood, and then it is completely and totally, absolutely covered in pure gold. And so I have the deity of Christ in authority over the humanity of Christ. Now, there are some that will argue against that and say, no, the humanity has equality. But the humanity does not have equality. I know that in two places. I know that from the cup of Gethsemane, and I know that from the Ark of the Covenant. The churches strip away the gold. They strip away the deity of Christ constantly. So they have, they have an Ark with no gold or very little gold. And actually, they have no gold on their arms. The and they, they strip away the godhood of Jesus Christ unceasingly. They never miss a Sunday. So allow me to repeat my repetition. If you deny the infinite godhood of Jesus Christ, you are in grievous error and you are in grievous jeopardy. You must believe Christ is God in order to be saved. You must believe that. Revelation 3.16, Jesus rebukes the apostasy of taking the gold away from the ark. And again, I'm using that as an example. He calls it vomit, right? He said, if you, have, if you don't have my deity, what you have is vomit. One must believe that Christ is God in the flesh to be saved. Can't say that enough. The ark pounds this truth throughout its construction. God would... Okay, we got this acacia wood. Now what do we got to do? We got to completely cover every every speck of it with gold. And then what do we have? We got rings on the sides of it. We have poles. And those poles and rings are particularly interesting and very obvious that they are testifying of Christ. The poles are made of acacia wood, the same as the ark. The poles are overlaid with gold, the same as the ark. So if gold means deity of the ark, then gold means deity of the poles, right? Has to be the same, the same as the ark. Pure gold, no imperfections, nothing in that gold that is not gold. It's always gold. And that refutes the teaching that God is the author of sin, right? Did you get that particular phase of this lecture? The fact that it's gold and only gold refutes that... uh, teaching, I don't know what to call it, that God is the author of sin. Because if he had sin in him, then there, I, wouldn't have, I wouldn't have perfect gold overlaying the humanity. He has no sin. That's why the gold is pure, is pure gold. There's no dread, dross in it. There's no imperfection in it. There's no other material but gold there. 
It has to be that way. Nothing in the gold that is not gold. The rings are, are pure cast gold. Exodus 25.12 The instructions from the Lord God Almighty Himself, Exodus 25.1, is that the ark may be moved. You can move the ark. But it has to be carried by the Levites. First Chronicles 15.2 Levites got to do it. And keep in mind that there aren't, the Levites aren't a simple situation. How many divisions of Levites are there? Do you know, do you know, do you know? I'll give you a hint. There are four divisions of Levites. There are the Kohathites, the Gershonites, the the Merahites, and the Aaronites. The Aaronites obviously are from the direct line of Aaron. These sons, for example. Anyway, the point for today, yea, a point is that Levites can touch the poles. Now that's a big mystery. Uzzah, if you remember that from last uh, lecture, it is believed was a Kohathite. And... uh, Though we don't know for sure. But he wasn't an Aaronite, so he's probably a Kohathite. So Uzzah could touch the poles. But you, so these Levites can touch the poles. And you've got to start thinking to yourself, okay, wait a minute. What happens if I touch the gold on the ark? Death. But I can touch the poles that are touching the rings that are touching the ark. And if I'm a Levite, I can hold the pole. But Uzzah decided he's going to put his hand on the ark. Death. So I got I got all of this coming my way. Again, Uzzah can touch the poles but not the ark. Second Samuel six, three through eight, and first Chronicles thirteen, seven through eleven. Immediate question is why can Uzzah touch the poles? Why can the to- poles be touched? They are acacia wood overlaid by pure gold, same as the ark. You would think that the same principle would apply, but it doesn't. So that's what? What what do we got here? We have a treasure. Something important is being dictated here. Huge treasure. Yeah, huge treasure. I should add numbers 4, 5 through 6. The Kohathites, when the tabernacle tent of Moses had to be moved, the ark was to be covered with a veil. Remember the veil that hangs between the Holy of Holies and the and, and the priest is the only one that can go through that veil. And Yom Kippur. And that veil is really thick, powerful, strongly made. And Christ tears it to pieces from the cross. But that veil has to be over the top of the ark when you're moving it. And I've also got badger skins and blue cloth, cloth and a purple cloth and scarlet cloth, numbers 4, uh, 4 through 20. All of that testifies of something. What is he doing? Why, when you move it, you got to completely cover it so nobody can see it? Why? Except these guys, we've got poles. Okay, you see the poles. Can't see the rings. Can't see anything else. Every time you move it, it's got got to be hidden. You can't tell what it is. And who's that? That's Christ. He's moving all over the place. And you can't tell who he is. Even to this day, nobody knows who he is. Or the church doesn't seem to know. Laodicea. He hid himself. Back to Psalm 10.1. Why do you stand afar off? Why do you hide in times of trouble? We've tried to answer that question. I think we have answered it by we. I mean me. It's a free will issue, isn't it? He doesn't interfere with your free will. That's why he hides. That's why he stands afar off. That's why the veil covers... The ark, when you move it, you can't see the ark. You don't know what that is. You have no idea that that's 
a, a man God or God man. You have no idea. So he hides his infinity and he does all of that until Matthew 17. Then he changes and he shifts. That's the transfiguration where he, where he opens himself up, right? He opens up the humanity. He strips away the humanity and, and he's there with Moses and Elijah and John, Peter and James. And what do you, what do they get to see? They got to see the gold, right? The deity. If you decide to study the tabernacle transportation protocols, recognize that there were poles for the tent of Moses that are also involved in the discussion. Not to be confused with the poles of the ark. You're going to read about poles, and you're going to commingle poles of the tabernacle with poles of the ark, and now, boom, off you go into the grave that has no ends. Anyway, Numbers 15, I'm sorry, 415, ultimately sums up the solemnity of this, the gravity of the moving of the tabernacle and the ark. They shall not touch any holy thing lest they die, Numbers 4.20. That's what God says to the Levites. Don't touch any of the holy things or you die. They shall not go in and watch the holy things being covered lest they die. Now these are Levites. So we got Levites that can cover things and Levites that, can, that can't watch it be covered. And Christ, of course, let me repeat that, they shall not go in to watch the holy thing being covered lest they die. And Christ is the holy thing, right? Of all of Luke one thirty five, I have the evil thing and the holy thing. He's the holy thing. Only Aaron and his sons could cover the most holy thing. Now, most of you are probably wondering, what does this have to do with the cup of Gethsemane? And hopefully a few of you will ask, why does God hide the ark? He had, he had uh, Jeremiah and, and, and Baruch hide the ark. We still haven't found it. Some think it's under the Temple Mount. Some think it's in the mountains somewhere. But, some, but at some point that ark is going to be found. When that ark is found, that is telling us how many more, how many hours we got left. Two? And that ark gets found and every, the world changes. It would be amazing. Why does God hide the ark? Because God hides himself. Why does he cover it with a veil? Because he hides himself. He doesn't want you to know it's him. How many times did he heal somebody and he said, don't tell anybody? does it all the time. I don't want people to know who I am. Why not? Why doesn't he say, it's me, God, I'm here? He does it eventually when he's king of kings. But he didn't do that in his first advent, did he? In his prophet stage, because he's trying to save people. Something about hiding himself saves people. Figure that out. What saves you? Belief. You were saved by belief. Remember me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe, he asked, do you believe me? I'm the resurrection and the life. Do you believe me? Answer yes. We believe you. Yes, go ahead. It's like people think that you have to do things and show that you're saved. Well, it's, it's, it's something hidden. It's not something out in the open. It's belief is hidden. That's, a, that's exactly right. He's not going to interfere with your belief by, by demonstrating. Everybody, he says to the Pharisees, uh, uh, an adulterous and evil generation wants what? Signs and wonders. 
Well, he did a lot of signs. He did a lot of wonders. But uh, he doesn't do it now. And he hid himself while he did it. Now, a few people figured it out. The centurion figured it out, for example. This is God. Oh, wow. That's God there. Oops. Anyway. What does this have to do with the cup of Gethsemane? And hopefully a few of you are going to ask, why does he cover it with a veil and protect the people of Israel from touching it? Because he can't, he can't let them touch it. Because if they touch it, what happens to them? They die. So he can't touch them. Can't touch it. So he covers it with a veil to protect it. From the, protect the people from the, from the ark. Now the question becomes is why is touching the ark death, a death sentence? Then we get into another subject completely, which I'll cover in a couple of weeks, I hope. Why death if a Kohathite, Levite priest, sees the mercy seat? If he sees it, he's dead. An Aaronite can, can see it, but not a Kohathite. And, and he can't see the mercy seat or any of the most holy things. And to remind everybody of the one thing, where is the Ten Commandments that are written by the finger of God? Where are they? They are inside the ark. Oh, they are inside the ark. Something is inside the ark. I'm going to insert a statement here now. I hope it's a goosebumpy statement for all of you. It may seem out of place, but the, I'm going to say this to you. I hope you get it. The ark drank the cup. That's what happened at Gethsemane. The ark drank the cup. Matthew 26:42. The cup is inside the ark now. Or the contents of the cup. Okay, I hope that made sense. Where am I? Who knows? If the ark can be carried by poles through rings, pure cast gold rings and acacia wood poles with all the wood covered in gold, then I am an electrically educated person. GP40-2s. Alaska Railroad. Chief electrician for the entire railroad when I was too dumb to know what, what to do. But I understand conductivity and magnetism and electrical current structures. Everybody thinks that uh, electrons now move through wires like pool balls through a tube. and It doesn't happen that way. There's a, what's called magnetic flux. Well, never mind. <laughs> the arc can be carried by poles through rings, pure cast gold rings with an acacia wood poles with all kinds of wood covering the gold, or covered in gold, sorry. Electrically, I now have conductivity. I have a circuit. Right? From the arc through the rings into the poles. And so I imagine it uh, like an AC transmission line attached to a 40-foot wooden utility pole, 110 kilovolts. I, I'm, you touch that arc, you're going to get blasted. And you can cast uh, aside my little example here. I just want to rely aloud... I, I wonder about the first person who touched the gold pole. How did he feel about that? He had all the warnings, don't touch the ark. I got a pole, and I can't take it out of the rings. The poles never come out of the rings. So the pole's touching the rings, the ring's touching the ark, and I'm supposed to pick up the pole. I wondered what he thought. Did, we, did I miss a, a small little disclaimer here? How nervous was he? Anyway, just my weird thing, way of thinking. Why was there no death from touching the pole that carries the that carries Christ? Because Christ is the ark. Why was there no death 
if you're carrying, if you've got a pole and you're carrying Christ. I answered the question in the question, but I'll to move on. And, and, and I, what I said was intentional. I did not miss, miss, misspeak. It's not a lapse, not recklessness. The Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of the Testimony is a portrait, is a symbol of the God-man Jesus Christ. That's what it is. Overwhelmingly. That's its sole function, frankly. To demonstrate Jesus Christ. And hidden truths are all over the place. They're plentiful for us to search them all out. To keep repeating, why is it safe to touch the poles? Have you figured that out yet? You had a plan. That which lifts Christ up can be touched. Because you're lifting Him up while you're moving. You're lifting Him up on a pole, right? And He does what? I got the bronze serpent. That's a, that's a picture of Christ as well. If you look at the, at the serpent on the, the curse, if you will, on the pole, you're saved. Christ became a curse for us. He's on a pole. I can touch the pole. But what about Mary and Thomas? Hopefully somebody says, what about Mary and Thomas? I will say, what about Mary and Thomas? Why did Eve say that the fruit could not be touched lest you die? Genesis 3, 2 through 3. Yeah, she did add that. She said, you can't touch it. And if you can't touch it, you're either talking about MC Hammer, which is kind of a joke, or you're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. You can't touch it. Mary, as you know, she's looking for Christ and she sees him and she thinks he's the gardener. Because you know why she thought he was a gardener? Because he's the gardener. I got Adam the gardener, I got Christ the gardener. Obviously he's going to be the gardener. But Thomas could touch Christ. And I submit that everyone in the room should, uh, everyone in the room with Thomas could have touched Christ as well. Yes? Christ invited Thomas to touch him. That's right. He ordered him to touch him. He's the ark. You can't touch the ark or you die. But he, but yet, the ark can be touched. Especially if you have a pole. Not a ten foot pole either. Another terrible joke. But I submit that everyone in the room could touch Christ because now he's touchable. Mary could not touch him. She couldn't cling to him. He said, do not touch me. The woman in Luke 7, 40, she's, she's kissing him to death. She's obviously touching him. There are many examples of Jesus touching and healing people. So how does this fit together with the ark that can't be touched? But Mary could not touch him, John 20:17, because he had not yet ascended to the Father and Mary was given an assignment instead. Don't touch me, I'm going to give you an assignment. So he did. She was told by God himself, John 20:17, to go and tell my brethren something. Say to them that Jesus is ascending to his Father and our Father and to his God, my God, and to your God. Tell them, tell them that. I'm ascending. Did he ascend? Yes, he ascends. But when does he ascend? Forty days later, fifty days, someone he sends on his ascension is in the clouds, in the uh, pillar of cloud in Acts. Now Christ ascends here. He says he has to ascend to the Father, and he assumes his high priest office and duties in Acts one one through eleven. Forty days later. So what are we doing here? The question then becomes, do we have two ascensions? He tells Mary, I have to ascend. Acts 1, 1 through 11, he finally does ascend. Did he ascend after he told Mary he was ascending? Of course he did. 
So he goes to see the Father. Does he have two ascensions? The first would be somewhat similar to 1 Peter 3, 18-22, when Christ brought a proclamation to the Jude 6 fallen imprisoned, Revelation 9, 1-20 angels. He goes to see the angels that are in prison. Now he's going to heaven. Obvious question, what? Is what? If he went to see the angels that were in prison, did he go to see the angels that were not in prison? Did Jesus Christ ascend to the throne room of heaven to present a proclamation to the faithful angels? Because he descended to the angels that are in Tartarus and the abyss. And he gave them a proclamation. He told them something was true. Now does he go to the heavens and tell them something that is true? I think he would. I think it's obvious that he did. And if you conclude that this is the case, what was what was his message? Did he have a different message to the imprisoned angels than he did to the faithful angels? Or was it the same message? For today, I will agree with those commentators who would advocate that Christ, after instructing Mary not to touch him, which again is a Leviticus 16.17 fulfillment, the high priest cannot be touched on the Day of Atonement until he comes out of the Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. Can't touch him. Obviously, Jesus is making atonement. Remember, they tie a rope around the, the priest's leg and pull him out in case he died in there. Obviously, Jesus is making atonement. He ascends to the heavenly holy of holies, which, of which the earthly holy of holies is made with hands, but is a copy to the heavenly holy of holies, which is the true, Hebrews 9.23-28. through 28. In other words, the Ark of the Covenant is made with hands. And it is not the real Ark of the Covenant. Does that make sense? Christ, of course, is the real Ark of the Covenant in some sense. But there's, a, there's an Ark in heaven. And the one that is on earth is a copy of the one in heaven. Again, Hebrews 9, 23, 28. Hebrews 8, 1 through 6. The earthly serves as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. So there is an Ark in heaven. Does it have a mercy seat? If it has a mercy seat, what's the mercy seat got to have on it? Got to have it. The blood of who? The blood of Christ. Got to be on the mercy seat. Is he going up to heaven with the blood, with his blood and pouring it on the mercy seat? Is that what he taught the faithful angels in heaven? What did he say to the imprisoned angels in the abyss? They say the same thing. I'm going up to the heavens. I'm going to pour my blood on that mercy seat. I see your hands. Got to hurry. Moses was instructed to make the tabernacle and the things of the tabernacle according to the pattern given to him by God on the mountain. And that pattern is a copy of the pattern that was the, that's the original, the true, that's in heaven. So if I am correct, Jesus is performing his high priest duties now. right? And he's about to enter the heavenly holy place when Mary attempts to cling to him. There's no. He directs Mary instead to explain to the disciples what he's going to do, the process that he's about to do. He's about to go to heaven. He's about to put his blood on the mercy seat. And he's going to say something to the faithful angel. Tell tell the apostles what I'm doing. That's what he tells Mary. And and some people think the brethren are are all the Jews. And his brethren are the Jews. He He is the Jew. God is a Jew. It's a big shock to people. Jesus Christ is a Jew and he is God. The Messiah is a Jewish God and and a Jew. So what we have on the table here is a journey to the abyss. 
abyss and a task to be compared in the heavens to the throne room. So those are both going to happen. Okay. That's where, again, that's where the true, the real mercy seat in the ark are. What we, what we see are copies. He has three pair, prayers, right? He prays three times in Gethsemane. He has been delivered and put on trial. He wanted to be delivered and put on trial. He has directed the cross to be on the skull, his cross to be on the skull of Goliath. This is what he's doing. And it all fits together. He has said seven things from the cross. He's been pierced on his side as was Adam was pierced in the side. He saves the thief. He saves the centurion. He resurrects the dead, Matthew 27, 51 through 54. They come out of the tombs and go into the city and testify. He tears the veil in two from the cross. He preaches to the fallen demons. He then ascends to the heavenly holy of holies with his blood to sprinkle on the heavenly mercy seat. That's what he does. That's what he's doing. Next, after Mary told the disciples what he was doing, John 20:18, Christ comes into the midst of the room and shows his disciples his hands and his side. Thomas, a bit later, now can touch the Lord God. He can touch the ark and not die. We can touch the ark now and not die. In fact, we live. So how does the cup of Gethsemane play into all of this? Can a case be made for Exodus 21, specifically Exodus 21, 1 through 6? I think so, otherwise I wouldn't be mentioning it right now. That's the law concerning servants. The servant shall six, I'm sorry. The servant shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free. That's the law of the servant. Immediately we should see the 6,000 years from Genesis 2, 7, right? You gotta serve six years, okay? 6,000 years. Genesis 2-7 is when the breath of the Spirit of life was breathed into Adam. That's when he became a living soul. 6,000 years from that day, that minute, is a big deal. The seventh year, of course, the 7,000th year, that's the millennial rule. That's freedom. So the bond servant, if he, he, after six years, can go out and he is free. And the servant or the bond servant, if you will, Philippians 2, 5 through 8, John 13, 12 through 17, John 13, 4 through 8, Mark 10, 45. Those passages are connected to Exodus 21, 1 through 6, and Christ calls himself a bond servant. And the Bible calls him a bond servant. So he can hang around for six years and then he's got to leave. He's free. Philippians 5, 2, 5 through 8, let, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ. Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, Jesus Christ is God himself. That's what Paul is saying here. That's what the Bible, the Holy Spirit is saying. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant. So there you go, baby. Exodus 21, 1 through 6, the law of the bond servant. And coming in the likeness of men. Likeness, it says, of men. So he's veiled. In more other words, Jesus Christ made himself a bond servant. Again, Exodus 21, 1 through 6. He is the bond servant. This is why he did this. Back to Exodus 21, 1 through 6. After 6,000 years, the bond servant shall be free in the 7,000 year and pay nothing. I changed it a little bit just to help you out because we're in a 7,000 year system, right? If he comes in by himself, which Christ did, he came in by himself, right? He shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife, Israel, shall go out with him. If the Father has given him a wife, John 17, 6-19, Ephesians 2, 20, 
And children, her children, now he's got a bride. He's got a wife and a bride. And she was born him sons and daughters. The wife and her children shall remain with the master. And the bondservant shall go out by himself. He can go out, but he's going to have to leave his wife and his children behind. But if the bronze servant plainly says, I love the father and the bride, Matthew 25, and my children, John 13, 23, I will not go out free. If he says that, Joel 2.32, Romans 10.13, then the father shall bring him to the judges, bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce him. He shall, the master will pierce him. Does the master have joy when he pierces him? Does he rejoice? Is he pleased to pierce him? Because the bondservant says, I'm not going out, I'm staying. I'm going to be a bondservant for how long? Ever. I'm not leaving. I'll never leave. I'll never leave anybody behind. That has been given to me. I lose none. Except the son of perdition. And so they're both, so the bondservant is being pierced by the father. Are they both rejoicing over that? They both are rejoicing, aren't they? Now you get an idea about that cup, don't you? Now I made added commentary to the purpose of displaying the typology, Exodus 21, 1 through 6 is clearly referring to Jesus Christ. And I could have said it this way, and, and he shall drink the cup and be a bondservant forever. Revelation 21, 23, Revelation 22, 4 through 5, Revelation 22, 16 through 17. He is a bondservant forever. Drank the cup. Got pierced. And yes, the cup of Gethsemane and the all of Exodus 21, 1 through 6 are, are reflections of one another. They fit together. I hope you saw that. I did my best. I should include another easy question. How does Christ, the bondservant, comply with the predestination of individual salvation? Just asking because it doesn't. He's a bondservant. It does not fit with this predestination of individual salvation idea that's constantly being thrown out there. If all are predestined either to salvation or to condemnation, what's the point of the all? What's the point of the cup? You've destroyed all both of them. What about the piercing? Does Jesus Christ love his wife and his bride to the point of death? Matthew 26:38. Obviously, yes. Then the reasons for the cup and the all are negated if you have a predestination position. You've wiped them out. The Bible is clear. Romans 5, 8, John 3, 16, 1 John 4, 10, 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 John 4, 8. God is what? Love. Christ is love. The cup and the all testify of the love of God. 21, Exodus 1 through 6. Christ drinks the cup, accepts the forever consequences. Why does he do it? Because he loves. What does the love of Christ disprove? Well, that would be obvious. He's demonstrating his love. And so he's disproving predestined individual salvation by doing so. I'll get more into that as, as the weeks go by. Christ drinks the cup, accepts the forever consequences because he loves. And predestination eliminates love. Predestination is a forced act. It's a coerced act. It's an act of, of outside force. The ark 
we, the, the ark, which is Christ, willingly drank the cup. Love is never forced, never coerced. If either is present, if force or coercion are present in love, then there is not, then there is no love. And he has love. So you, when you have a predestined coerced position, forced position, you are saying that Christ is not love. God is not love. I just rattled off six, seven verses. It says the opposite of that. There is this mysterious verse in Genesis 3.17. Almost done. I hope people are still awake. The curse of death, Genesis 3.19. Physical death is for our sake, it says. And that's a very curious statement. Very mysterious. Many theologians have attempted to clarify how physical death is a benefit to us. And it usually ends the aging process. That's what they most cite. They say, well, you, 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 you die because you get old. And that's good because you can't do anything. And you're worthless. And you're tired and you hurt too bad. So it's kind of, it's kind of, what, kind of a mercy killing. That's what they'll say the death is. But it also ends the evil of the wicked in general. And that's generally included in their commentary. Setting all those aside, there's a predestination to condemnation aspect to it. That's for your sake. If God has predestined billions for damnation, eternal death, utter darkness, inescapable or unescapable misery, if he has done that, which is their position, and he has not done that, but they say he has, but for a second I'm going to concede the ridiculous hypothesis. How does this predestined eternal punishment comply with physical death being a benefit for our sake? Can't be a benefit, can it? Not if it's predestined. Clearly it does not. I should add that as death, add that as death approaches, the mind is focused. There's no question about that. Only Jesus Christ can save you from death. He's the only one who can, is the only one who will, because he loves. He's in the love stage. He's in the prophet stage right now. He's coming as the, he's coming as the high priest. He's coming as the judge and the king. Right now, he's in the salvation stage. He's the only source of life. He's the only one that can and will resurrect the dead. John eleven twenty five. And he's a lone solution. Again, Joel two thirty two, Romans eight thirteen, Luke twenty three forty two. The thief seized his one hope, and Christ saved him. And just. Remember me. Okay. Saved. The same as Luke 18.13, the tax collector, tax collector, he's mourning, beating his breast in sorrow. He's having great sorrow. God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ did what? Luke 18.14. Saved him. Obviously, predestined condemnation has no value and is in contradiction to Genesis 3.17-19 that death is for our sake. As we should expect, Adam changed the woman's name to Eve, the mother of all living, because Adam realized the purposes of physical death, especially death through aging. The relationship between Christ and Adam is beyond astonishing. The cup, the woman, the nakedness, the covering, the agony, the sorrow. Satan was unable to deceive Adam. The deep sleep, the naming of the animals, just to list a few things that Christ utilized while he was here. Final questions. The death of Jesus Christ is for our sake. How does this fit with Genesis 3:17 through 19? So answer that question, which I already did. Why did Jesus wait? Want his disciples to watch here and witness Gethsemane? He did. He wanted them to do it. They didn't do it. Angels watched. 
Why did Jesus want his disciples again? I saw, you know, read the same question back, back and forth here. What was their temptation if they didn't pray? They all fell asleep. What was their temptation? He said, lest you, fail, you succumb to temptation. You've got to keep praying or you're going to succumb to temptation. Was there temptation them falling asleep? Why did they fall asleep? It said sorrow. They fell asleep because of sorrow. Is Jesus Christ inside of the new city of Jerusalem? Yes or no? Do you know? You said yes. Revelation 21-23 he says yes. All will walk in the light of the Lamb. Revelation 21-24. So, he's inside and he's the light of the new city of Jerusalem. How much light is in the new city of Jerusalem then? Well, he's, all, he's light and he's infinite, right? And he's inside the building, isn't he? And he's providing light to the whole thing. How much light? How big is the new city of Jerusalem if he's inside of it? It's got to be Aleph Tav. It's got to be infinite, right? The infinite one. Here's a question that none of you will like. Is the drinking of the cup outside of time? When is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? When are the names of the small and the great not found in the books? Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Who are the small and the great? Death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 14. This is the second death, the final death. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. Revelation 20, 13. The sea also gives up the dead who were in it. Revelation 20, 13. We've got to investigate that. How does Revelation 20 refute Predestination. Revelation 20 is great white throat judgment. It, it, why have a trial if there's no free will? You've got all of these billions of people. None of them have free will. And you're having a trial for every one of them. Holding them accountable. Does that make any sense at all? No, it doesn't. On that note, I will shut up.
before you make that last journey on to man's long, long home. Remember now thy creator before the funeral bell tolls. When the funeral bell tolls and the dark shadows creep and the mourners stand Stars in the street Yeah, that day will soon come In that much you can trust Remember now thy creator Before the flesh turns to dust For the dust shall go down Into the earth once again And then the spirit returns Back to God where it came When time gives way To eternity Remember now thy creator All else is but vanity Vanity of vanities All but the duty of man To the Savior you must Remember now thy Creator Before you meet him as the judge